Welcome to Gonzo Times Radio. I am your host, Punk Johnny Cash. And uh, I've got a reading for you to start today. I figured we need a good place to start. This is from a book called The Dialect of Enlightenment, actually just Dialect of Enlightenment, by Max Horkheimer and Theodore Adorno. Uh, now, they both wrote this. It's kind of un hard to tell who wrote what, so we'll just talk about what they wrote. I got a few bits here to start us on our path. Now, we're going to look at a few things. Um, we've talked about the dialectical process, and I'm going to probably talk about it uh, in a different manner here in this episode that I have in the past. Um, and we've also, so far, we've talked about the construction of the human being through the social process within that, within society, that all these very important, pertinent things, when we're discussing this, uh, they will overlap at points. So to start with, we're going to talk about the dialect of enlightenment, and, and I'm going to say that there's a premise behind this book. Adorno and Horkheimer look at science, enlightenment, the technological age we brought about, as a new form of domination in a prison and a new bias that has unleashed an untold nightmare upon the world. <laughs> so we'll go into that and, and we'll go further from there. We're, we're going to start at the end. Well, actually, in the 1940s. So Adorno and Horkheimer, they are uh, before the 40s. They were Jewish men living in Germany, philosophers. They fled as they saw the rise of fascism and Hitler came to the United States. And they said, whoa. There's a problem here, too, which is not just Germany. <laughs> and they talk about it. Um, so we're going to talk about this, and we're going to talk about domination and a few things like that. So let's let's begin with a few excerpts. This isn't going to be straight through. The oarsmen, who cannot speak to one another, are each of them yoked in the same rhythm as the modern worker in the factory. Movie theater and collective. The actual working conditions in society compel conformism, not the conscious influences which also made the suppressed men dumb and separated them from truth. The impotence of the worker is not merely a stratagem of the rulers, but the logical consequence of industrial society, into which the ancient fate and the very course of the effort to escape it has finally changed. But this logical necessity is not conclusive. It remains tied to domination. So it's tied to something here we want to look at. There's uh, a reason some of these things are happening. It's nothing new, right? Like we related it to the past, to the oarsmen. As both its reflection, it remains tied to domination as both its reflection and its tool. Therefore, its truth is no less questionable than its evidence is irrefutable. Of course, thought has always sufficed concretely to characterize its own evocation. It is the servant that the master cannot check as he wishes. Domination ever since men settled down and later in the commodity society has been become objectified as law and organization and must therefore restrict itself. Skipping ahead a little bit, they said, uh, Today, with the transformation of the world into industry, the perspective of universality, the social realization of thought extends so far in its behalf that the rulers themselves disavow thought as mere ideology. The bad conscience of cliques, which ultimately embody economic necessity, is betrayed in its revelations from the institutions of the leader to the dynamic 
Weltanschauung. Now, that word is a German word. Essentially, the closest thing I can think of to relate it to is ideology. So, the leader to the dynamic of the ideology uh, no longer recognized in marked contrast to earlier bourgeois apologetics. Their own misdeeds as necessary consequences of statutory contexts, the mythological lies of mission and destiny, which they use as substitutes, never declare the whole truth. Gone are the objective laws of the market, which ruled the actions of the entrepreneur intended towards catastrophe. Instead, the conscious decision of managing directors' executives as a result, as are more obligatory than the blindest price mechanisms. The old law of value and hence the destiny of capitalism, the rulers themselves do not believe in any objective necessity, even though they sometimes describe their concoctions thus. They declare themselves to be engineers of world history. Only the rule would accept as unquestionable necessity the course of development that with every decreed rise in the standard of living makes them so much more powerless. When the standard of living of those who are still employed to service the machines can be assured with a minimal part of the working time available to the rulers of society, the superfluous reminder the vast mass of the population is drilled is yet another battalion, additional material to serve the present and future great plans of the system. The masses are fed and quartered as the army of the unemployed. In their eyes, the reduction to mere objects of the administered life, which performs every sector of modern existence, including language and perception, represents objective necessity, against which they believe is nothing they can do. Misery is the antithesis of power, and powerlessness grows immeasurably. Together with the capacity to remove all misery permanently, each individual is able to penetrate the forest of cliques and institutions, which from the highest levels of command to the last professional rackets ensure the boundless persistence of status. For the union boss, let alone the director, the proletarian, should he ever come face to face with him, is nothing but a supernumerary example of the mass, while the boss, in his turn, as to tremble at the thought of his own liquidation. The absurdity of a state of affairs in which enforced power of the system over man grows with every step that takes it out of the power of nature, denounces the rationality of the rational society as obsolete. Its necessity is elusive to no less than the freedom of the entrepreneurs who ultimately reveal their compulsive nature in the inevitable wars and contracts. This illusion in which a wholly enlightened mankind has lost itself, cannot be dissolved by a philosophy which, as the organ of domination, has to choose between command and obedience. Interesting. What did that mean? Listen to it a few times if you didn't catch it all. There's, there's, a, there's a lot going on here. And uh, I'm, I want to talk about this development of the Enlightenment and the situation we've gotten ourselves in, because there's this 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 massive amount of social control. It talks about cliques, you know, roles in different areas where we are placed into in society that we have to. We are labor. Let's start with the labor as the number one, right? Uh, we must labor to eat to have a house, right? Unfortunately, throughout history. We have been laboring so that a select few don't have to labor. And they live in absolute luxury. And they control the world, the domination, the domination game. They rule. 
We provide them with everything that they need. We are uh, refuse to them, thrown away in the wastebasket. And this isn't anything new. It's been happening for thousands of years. Let's talk, let's talk about that. I'm going to skip ahead in this book, and I'm going to read one simple sentence, because we're going to talk about these people who rule their power. And, and, and over time, we have, uh, as it says, the burger and successive forms of slave owner, free entrepreneur, and administrator is the logical subject of the Enlightenment. What does that mean? Well, let's, let's go through this. There's a great conversation. Have you heard of the great conversation? If not, you should look it up. It's horrible and wonderful all at the same time. <laughs> we talked a little bit on, into the great conversation. When we talked about Plato's golden man or the, the utopia and Plato's utopia. What Plato and Aristotle saw in there was that there are some people who were those people who didn't really shouldn't be the laborers, the ones who do hard work. They got to do things like think and have a political life. And there's an idea back in Athens about democracy where all free people were to come together and they would make the choices together. And they would all have a say. That's long gone. And even then, it only existed in a highly stratified system. Certain people were considered free. Helots and, 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 and households held slaves and, and women. and vast majority of society was not included in that. But there is that idea that power can be distributed to a point where we can all have a say. That's threatening to some people. Who's that threatening to? Well, it's, it's threatening to the people who are sitting up there living in luxury, right? These, uh, and these people, they, it changes hands throughout history. Like we talk a lot about capitalism here lately because capitalism is the current global form of domination in this game. But capital is not the only form of domination and social control which, which guides and directs this dynamic through history. Now, there's a lot of, of, of things said in the Great Conversation. I would say it's largely biased because most of the people involved in the Great Conversation really benefited from this unequal distribution of wealth, the redistribution of wealth from the workers to the leisure class. That is what it is. And that is what they threaten will happen if they have to work. Oh, so they're afraid of having to get their hands dirty. Interesting. Of course they are, because they're busy trying to shape and mold the world to suit them in their luxury and their excess and their greed. We've turned greed into the a, a driving force that they call nature. Human, It's human nature. Well, you know, I find that to be a, a load, a crock of shit, to be honest. There's no... And a, 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 equating humans' actions to nature itself is is a flawed perception, right? It's, it's one of those things that they spent many years in the great conversation doing. Now, let's talk about the great conversation for a minute. It starts with Plato and Aristotle and all these pre-Socratics, these philosophers. This is the idea of Western civilization, right? This is the civilization that brought us colonialism and, and, and slavery and domination. This is largely a philosophical, economic, and scientific discussion that has been happening, which is wonderful. It's given us great knowledge. It's preserved history. It's let us see things in manners we couldn't, but it's also, there's a high bias there, right? It's being preserved by those who have access to these technologies that were emerging, like writing. If the slave was just there to tend your gardens and, and do the hard work, they don't really need to read and write and engage in this discussion. That's not their place in society. That's kind of what Plato and Aristotle were saying. They only need an education that is useful for the dominators, right? For the slave owners. This ideology persists throughout thousands of years. 
Now things start to shift philosophically. The world changes in the Western. We're speaking specifically of Western civilization, right? This is the domination force. This is largely where this so-called great conversation has occurred. It's one specific culture, essentially one specific strain. It's not a global thing happening everywhere else. Language is sort of a barrier to that, but that's for another time. We have ideologies. We've talked about this. Uh, ideology is the way that we perceive the world, and, and our biases seep into them. Everybody has a, essentially a different ideology, despite the fact that we've written them down on large tones and tried to give very articulate forms of it. Mostly it's just fragments of those ideas that seep into people's ideologies. Our ideologies are probably influenced more by catchphrases than the actual academic side of this, right? And that's part of our, we'll, we'll, we'll get a little further into that as we go. So we have ideologies, the lens of which we view the world. Some maybe I see the world as a, as a Christian. God is the, the almighty, right? And this is a big ideology throughout history that situates a very hierarchical element in this dogma, which says that, you know, there's God and then there's the king. There's God and then there's the pope. Because the power dynamics shift over time. And as the church comes into power, as Constantine forms the church out of a slave religion with the ideologies of the slaves uh, directed to dominate slaves with this religion and this ideology from the hierarchy of the Roman church, we see this seeps into most and in all uh, formal education, and, uh, scholastics. Uh, there's something we'll probably have to get into at some point in time because there's some interesting things there with what that actually is. But the church emerges largely as one of those major forces of economic and social control. It preserves the we have and you labor. It even gives you a narrative behind it. Your suffering and toiling is good within itself. Labor itself is wonderful. Uh, at some point in time, we'll have to talk about the Protestant work ethic and capitalism by Weber. It's it, but it's neither here nor there. Uh, but there is, there is, you get a reward, right? Like they, they know you're getting screwed. You're the, the low end worker, the most necessary labor historically has been the least compensated, has been forced on others. But that's not talked about in most of the, the great conversation, except for in passing. They don't focus on those at the bottom in this, right? It is theirs to know that they must submit and obey. And when you get into the rigid legalism of the church, the forms of social control become vast. They permeate every part of your part of society. The church could only last so long, you know, basing it is largely this conversation going back and forth, the great conversation, the evolution of how we know things, how we come to knowledge. And this is what we find in philosophy, right? How these people hashed out all these things and came up with great things like mathematics and science. A great dark age occurs when, when the church is in power. Now, there's arguments of why it's the Dark Age and not. I'm not getting into that. But the fact remains that we have very little advancements with knowledge with this one great hegemon. One thing comes out of this hegemon. It's called propaganda. Now, propaganda, the term had a different connotation at one point in time than it currently does. But despite its connotation, we're going to talk about propaganda as direct result from the church. Uh, the term that's, they say, it's coined in 1622, 
Pope Gregory, brightened by the spread of Protestantism and what's changing, creates the office of propagation, essentially, and out of this comes propaganda. It's proselytizing. So this is propaganda. Um, the media, as you watch, is propaganda. Most things are propaganda. They have some sort of message behind them, whether you can pick it out or not. Your inability to pick it out is more troubling. It shows the blind spots. It shows that it, those things may be in line with your ideology that you have been socialized with. And again, where we socialized with from the state, right? Like uh, Aristotle and Plato were very into this idea that we are going to teach the right thought, the way the structure should be. That some some men are bronze; they're just they're just meant to toil until they die, and then the church says they'll get their pie in the sky, right? Like your reward is literally dying for their wealth. This is the ideology that these people forced labor upon the world and literally forced it as they started realizing that the serfs weren't enough to really create the kind of mass labor society and, and wealth and, and that they were trying to accumulate. And they started, you know, really started getting crazy with the slave thing. The slave thing wasn't new. The slave thing had been going on through conquered people. They started exporting slaves, buying slaves, you know, at least just a lock. So from the beginning, from Aristotle's time, there's a class structure. At different times, a class structure is named specifically. It is said, these are the helots, these are the serfs, these are the aristocracy, this is the king. You are in your proper place. From God on high, you serve, your reward is your death. Well, they rewarded workers for a thousand years with death. And then workers got a little mad. They said, I don't think Death is a good reward for me uh, for working so hard for you to have everything and control everything and just continue to kill for resources. This killing for resources goes back a long time. They uh, who wish to have greed as their nature in the ideology they have constructed so that their nature is to just continue to consume everything, continue to produce, continue to greedily and of course, they, they, they place this on like, you know, an invisible man or an invisible hand at different times. The actual nuances of the ideology matter less, matter less than the agreement they come upon. Here's, go back to Plato again. Plato's one of the first people to kind of point this in, right? Well, Plato had this, uh, Plato's uh, dialogues, one of the or ones that... Paramenides, Paramenides is called Paramenides, and 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 it's it's uh it features Socrates when he was young, and, and a few others of these folks coming doing the dialectical process, right? The Socratic method, going back and forth, questioning each other. They're presenting their cases that completely disagree, but they agree on the conclusions, despite the disagreements towards the conclusions, because in the end, it does not matter. The ideology used to support said actions, right? Like these are specific actions. As long as we can agree upon these actions, these people should be killed because they did not submit in labor. These people should be killed because we want the resources in this place. These people should be killed because they have a nice little area that we're going to raid and take all of their comforts. I think that's a terrible way for us to distribute goods across society and amongst ourselves. I think it's a terrible way. But the people who are consuming it all at the top think it's a great way. In fact, they think it's they think it's just 
They think it's it's they think it's a, a a goodness. They think it's righteousness that their wealth is a sign of righteousness from God on high. Just talk to Joel Osteen. Ideology. We have different lenses, all brought in by the inputs that we were educated with, by our experiences, by our biases. At the end, as long as we can kind of agree, despite the difference of the ideology, that's where we find the place, the synthesis that matters, right? Thesis, antithesis, synthesis. What matters is where a mass population agrees. It doesn't even have to be the mass population that agrees. It just has to be those with enough power to either kill and kill or subdue uh, those who disagree, which are usually those at the bottom. Now, this long conversation that occurred throughout the centuries, the great conversation of history of Western philosophy, as I've pointed out repeatedly, it is biased because it is coming from those who were largely benefiting from this unequal distribution and calling it nature. Their action is natural, they say. Hmm. That's absurd. We eventually reach a, a time of, of Galileo and, and Newton and some of the control of the ideology coming from on high, coming from the church, people walking in. You know, we didn't have TV, but we could be told there was damnation, hellfire, and sin and death if we did not adhere to XYZ, which usually benefited those in power. But if you do as you are supposed to and you submit to those in power, you get your reward, and that is death. The pie in the sky. There's an old song about that, the preacher and the slave. Who was that? Long-haired preachers come out every night, try to tell you what's wrong and what's right. But when asked, how about something to eat? They will answer in voices so sweet. You will eat by and by. In that glorious land above the sky, work and pray, live on hay. You'll get pie in the sky when you die. They also go on to say that in the Salvation Army, they play and sing using the clap. They pray because the Salvation Army was literally formed a charity to negate the efforts of the working class organizing against the capitalist. The Salvation Army was a defense of the stratification of labor, of those in power. These wealthy-to-do, gilded-age folks thought that there was something great about all their little traditions and nuances that kept them living fat on the hog at the top, not having to get their hands dirty or dig a pit or be involved in the assembly line or even craft a thing, add anything of value to society is a parasitic class. A parasitic class should not be the one in charge. I'll just say that. But they threaten you with that, right? They say, oh, no. If you allow poor people to get their needs met, they will become a parasite on society. The largest parasite on society is not a labor class, but a technical class, right? Like the technocratic, bureaucratic nonsense that siphons labor and power from us. And it didn't start that way as, a, as, as the capitalist, right? It begins in the church. And things shift through the dialectical process back and forth. We continue on the conversation, the great conversation, and we learn more. And they have to adjust to reality as it goes forward. But they cling on to some of these old ideologies that are nonsense at this point. 
that's how we continue to have churches and stuff like that, right? Like we continue to perpetuate these ancient dogmas of domination that came from on high, from the parasite class, from the exploitative class. And we continue to fall into their into their uh, their desires, right? Because they're taught to us from school. We have social studies classes that tells us how great these wealthy and powerful people were. They were such hard workers, yet they never stepped foot in a goddamn factory or in a field or tilled the land themselves. Come to the invention of the states, the nation states, and this is an evolution that occurs. Um, perhaps I should continue this in a part two, where we will talk more about nation states and the evolution of this. Uh, we'll call this the domination game for now, for lack of a better term. They continue to call it domination through Horkheimer and Adorno. Uh, this dialect, this uh, this this way that we are educating others, and we begin to get really hardcore into it in in the 20th century when it comes to things like propaganda, and uh, as we begin to learn scientifically, you know what works in social control. Uh, at the beginning, we just kind of had to threaten people with heaven and hell, right? Like at a point, like oh, there's heaven or hell, you don't get it, you know. We hold the resources, the violence, the guns. Well, actually, at that point in time, it was like swords and horses, those resources. They had the wealth for those things. And by the time Galileo and, and, and Newton and them started coming around, science started emerging. Guess the first thing that happened was those in power started asking for better munitions. Advancement was immediately linked to warfare. Well, I think I'll expand from there and we'll talk about the enlightenment in the next issue because there's a lot more I want to get to. We're coming up on time. So be prepared for part two where we talk about the enlightenment, why science is fucking horrible and all these other things. I hope you've enjoyed what you've heard today. If you're getting something out of this, please share it with others. Help us get the word out. We're not on any social media with this stuff. So I'm really relying on y'all to give me help me make some kind of organic Reach out with this if possible. It's being hosted over here on my own server. Thank you for listening. Um, I'll be back with part two very soon. <laughs>